Tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections on one of the sections that we find in the Satipatthana Sutta. It's that discourse that we keep on sharing with you about the four foundations of mindfulness, or maybe more accurately, the four establishments of mindfulness, or the four ways to establish mindfulness. And it's uh, one of the sections around mindfulness of the body. And for me, it's uh, an essential piece of what it is to be present or what it is to be mindful for this path and, and practice, but in particular for a longer retreat like this. And specifically for this time on retreat, Five days. Such precious time. And maybe some of your minds are thinking about after retreat, planning, planning. (laughs) So what's this uh, section that we find in Mindfulness of the Body? The instructions are to imagine. To imagine like you were in a charnel ground. Remember, a charnel ground. Charnel grounds were places where unclaimed human bodies were left to decay and rot. So it's this imagining, oh, as if one were in a charnel ground, and then to to imagine, to really take in these bodies strewn all over the place in various stages of decomposition. You know, as the Buddha says, he says. Again, practitioners, as though you were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground and then looking at you know, these d- different phases of uh, degrees of decomposition, decomposition and then a practitioner compares this same body with it thus. Oh, this too, this body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. In this way, a practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body. So here it is, mindfulness of the body, this practice of reflecting on the inevitability of your death. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. I think for so long I thought mindfulness, so many teachers talk about this, including me, it's just about being present. Yet, you might notice if you really take in, even right now, I'm gonna die, it gives a very different flavor to what it means to be present and the feeling of being present itself. Can you notice that just in this moment? Oh, wow, I'm, I'm going to die sooner rather than later. It feels that way. And can you feel the difference? This is the, the main thing I hope you come away with is like getting the feeling sense of how that can shape what it is to be mindful. 
And I want to say there is an art to skillfully landing this, to skillfully landing, oh, I'm going to die, this reflection. Oh, this body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. And the reason why it's an art to skillfully land it uh, is because uh, you might have noticed this sometimes with a reflection on death, it could make us stop or collapse in our practice. And that's not the aim. It's rather to give a broader view in a way that allows this reflection to, to galvanize your practice. And hopefully an open and easeful and relaxed way. And I want to point out, I, I think it's often a process of getting to that place. For those of you who have done this reflection, you probably notice sometimes it's a relief and there's an opening around such a reflection. Sometimes there's strong emotion or surprise or fear. That's all part of the process. Again, tonight, that's what I want to share reflections with you about. And a bit later, I, I want to speak about this practice of reflecting on another important fact, that you were born. And again, this is something the, the Buddha uh, offers as a wise reflection in the suttas, this precious human birth. And then afterwards, uh, I want to take you through just a brief guided meditation through both of them. And in particular, these reflections are meant to help to establish mindfulness, right? The four ways of establishing mindfulness. So it's not about doing such a reflection all the time while on retreat, but it could be reflecting on that a couple times uh, during the day and then just noticing how it can help color being present. The, the way I see it is it's like we're placing this medicine, you can say, for our healing, for our awakening into the field of a retreat. And then just let it establish this quality of presence in the way it will. And I want to point out, just hearkening back to the skillfulness of, of really landing this this art in a skillful way, to remember, since you're going to die soon, <laughs> there just isn't enough time left left in your life to rush and hurry. <laughs> There's not enough time to be tense and tight. This is really important. There's only enough time to relax, to be easeful, to slow down. I think when I start to feel that, oh, then I'm really landing this in a way that establishes mindfulness. So the inevitability of our deaths, the, this human situation that we're involved in. The, the poet novelist Alice Walker puts it well in her 
her poem Lying Quietly. She says, Lying quietly, bones aching. I feel I must be falling through them. That standing upright was an idea, an interlude, an illusion. That we are, as always, on our way to dust. That standing upright thing that's happening every day? (laughs) It really is. It's just an, an interlude. You're always on your way to dust. So how does such a reflection establish mindfulness? How does this work? How can it give a different sense of what it is to be on retreat and to be present? And I think, first of all, what I find it does is it allows us to put things into context. For example, someone asked the Dalai Lama once what surprised him the most. And he said, what surprises me most are human beings because they sacrifice their health in order to make money. Then they sacrifice money to recuperate their health. And then they are so anxious about the future that they don't enjoy the present. The result being they don't live in the present or the future. (laughs) They live as if they're never going to die. And then they die having never really lived. Ever notice this? It's like we're it's like we're desperately running in circles in this crazy way. And what's underneath it is not knowing how to be in this moment. And I think this is one of the powerful things about a long a longer retreat. Have you noticed this quality of mind, the mind that's running in circles? I hope you have. As hopefully you know now, part of a retreat is disturbing. It's meant to disturb my heart, to disrupt it. Because it's only when I start to see that how the heart is in bondage that I can begin to free it. I need to see this running in circles. And what a great way to put it in context of that there's a deeper way to be in the world. So knowing I'm going to die, that I'm always on my way to dust, it clarifies, just as the Dalai Lama did. It clarifies the importance of this path that we're exploring, this path to freedom. It brings us to here, now, this. I mean, seriously, how do you aspire to be in this world? 
Is it desperately running in circles or here? Now, this. I, I remember when this got clarified for me quite deeply. And it was when my partner and I got married. And the theme of our wedding was this relationship is going to end. <laughs> right? it's, it's either going to end in death or estrangement. And after, after our wedding, right after, both of us decided to regularly contemplate our own death and the death of the, the other. Because it's true, we're always on our way to dust. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. And I know, and I want to be cautious about this, you know, bringing up kind of romantic, sexy ideas like this on long retreat can be kind of, you know, disturbing. But... And I remember doing this reflection and when I was away from her, either on retreat or teaching retreat, there was this feeling, especially after we got married, of desperately wanting to be with her if I'm going to die soon. Like if I'm going to die soon, that's where I want to be. I don't want to be here. I want to be there. This is what I need to be doing. So here you can hear the, the, the stirring, right? The stirring of desperation. And I mention this because a reflection on death can stir. It can stir feelings of wanting or loneliness. It can stir, stir fear, longing. It can even stir the desperation to be on a beach in Mexico, right? <laughs> And it can also sometimes stir the desperations that have gotten entangled in our meditation practice. Right? The desperation to overcome right, the judging, the shame, the desperation to want that strong taste of samadhi or freedom. And again, those can be such beautiful aspirations, but sometimes they tip, don't they? They tip over into desperation. Or to become that special person everybody loves or looks up to or admires or thinks is wise. Or maybe it stirs simply the fear of dying. And as I said, that can happen, and that's why we need to make it into our practice. And so as our, my partner and I were doing this reflection, I remember then there was a turn in that practice for me. And it was just the simple turn. Oh, all I really have, all I really have is just here, now, this. That's it. I'm going to die. 
All there is is here, now, this. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. And what we're really looking for is, is allowing that, that reflection to, yes, yeah, stir your aspirations, as I was saying in the first talk I shared with you. Aspirations so that they do bring you here. They do bring you into now and this. This is the skill that we're trying to learn. I also want to point out that this reflection on death, it can also bump into notions that you might have about living and dying because they're so intertwined. And help, in a, in a way to help elicit this, I ask you the question, what, for you, what is your notion? What's your notion of a complete life or a fulfilling life? What is that? Is a complete life one in which you live until you're 85 or 95? Is that what makes life fulfilling or complete? Only people who live that old are the ones that get to live a complete life or fulfilling life? What is a fulfilling life or a complete one? Does that mean if you die tonight or tomorrow, it's not complete or fulfilling? Because you haven't lived long enough? Is that a notion that sometimes I think so many of us are, are, are given from society and culture? Is that your sense? Or is life about accumulating as many experiences as you can before you die? Maybe in this context, accumulated as many spiritual experiences as you can, or as many pleasant experiences, at least, before you die. Is that, seriously, is that what makes your life fulfilling? Does it make it feel complete? What are these notions your mind has been given about living and therefore dying? Because I want to point out there can be a kind of consumerism that we bring to spiritual practice. And it's important to ask the question, is that really a fulfilling life or a complete one? Or is life about feeling less depressed? Is it about feeling less anxiety? Is that what you would call actually a fulfilling life? Seriously reflecting on that. And I want to be clear, it's wonderful to have less depression and anxiety, so I am not minimizing that or dismissing that in any kind of way. 
it's asking the question of, is that what brings fulfillment or completeness? Less anxiety, less depression. Because if there's only that, maybe there's a missing of depth. Don't you think? And I want to point out these notions can be really quite, you could say, like subterranean in the heart. They work on us in a way sometimes that we're not even conscious of. That's why I want to, to name this. And this, again, kind of threads back to the the first talk I offered you. What is your aspiration for this very brief life of yours? Because it intertwines with what it is to be on retreat and also just to have five days left. Right? Because you need to remember, really, all you have is here, now, this, that's it. You know, so for me, the sense, and it's going to be possibly different for you, to to serve the Dharma through my practice, or you could say the serve the sacred by freeing the heart, that feels like my duty. And even if I don't complete it, it offers such depth to hear now this. It offers depth to my living and to my dying. Or that last talk I gave you on the seven factors of awakening, to, to see that as a possibility to behold beauty. What would it be like to, to have that as an aspiration, just to be touched by this moment right now, before you die? Can you feel the depth of that? to have a duty to behold beauty, especially the beauty of the heart. So having aspiration and in some strange way to have enough at the same time. Alison Luderman in one of her poems puts it well. She says, I'm learning to rest inside the word enough. It's rough, leathery consonants. It's F of finitude. Can you learn to rest inside the word enough? This moment, this moment is enough. And can you find it in here, 
now this So another facet of this reflection on dying that I want to share with you is not only in terms of how do I relate to me, but how do you relate to others? Like the other people on this retreat in the silence within your heart. How do you do that? How does it influence that? And I'd like to share with you a poem that that asks this question, I feel. It's a poem by Ellen Bass called, If You Knew. She begins this question to us. She says, what if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, and tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block, and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are? Soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time. So how close do the dragon spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? Can you remember this about all the people around you on this retreat? They're going to die. And birth, you've been born. 
And I feel like this reflection on birth is so important and crucial because it establishes mindfulness in its own particular way. And I remember feeling the the weight in a positive way of being born. And it was when uh, I was at this uh, kind of this visitor center at a national park and they had this, it was so cool, they had this huge timeline that was uh, represented the timeline of the Earth's 4.5 billion year history. It was so cool. And one way to get a sense of this, the Earth's 4.5 billion history, and maybe you've seen this, is to squish it, squish it into one calendar year. It really puts things in such good perspective. So if you imagine, okay, 4.5 billion year history of the Earth, you know, begins January 1st, and then we go all the way to December 31st, the very end of December 31st. And if we were to do that, then on February 25th, life appears on this planet. And this, I think, is a trip. It's not until July 17th that multicellular life appears. So we're almost like, right, what about halfway, all the way, halfway through (laughs) July 17th. Early November, (laughs) first plants on land appear. November 18th, the first fish appear. And then December 12th, a mass extinction happens and 95% of the species disappear. December 12th, just to remind you. And then December 13th, 14th, the first mammals appear on this earth. December 28th, the first primates. December 31st at 11.36 p.m., (laughs) Homo sapiens appear on this earth. And then at December 31st at 11.55 p.m., the arising of civilizations. Brian Swim put it well. He said, four and a half billion years ago, the earth was a flaming molten ball of rock. And now it can sing opera. (laughs) It's incredible, isn't it? This precious human birth. For me, it clarifies the preciousness that we have to practice on this retreat right now. All these conditions coming together like they have in your life, this is extremely rare. Can you really taste just here, now, this? in this container, to really get the depth of tasting that. It's such a precious opportunity. And I think this is why the Buddha so often talks about 
precious human birth and the reflection on that. And maybe you can get a feeling of that. Oh, wow. This is a precious time on retreat. And when I talk about precious human birth, I'm, I share this not to re- reinforce kind of, you could say, prevalent dynamics of what we could call human supremacy. And what I mean by that, by human supremacy, is the notion that humans are superior in a way that leads to domination and harm and unnecessary destruction of other forms of life. But rather to value, to value our time here on this retreat. And I want to point out the reflection on death can reveal additional things to us about our lives that can give a sense of of more dimensionality of what I'm sharing with you. And these ideas come from two different people. One is uh, Hannah Arendt. Maybe some of you have read some of her writings about natality. And when the word, the way she uses that word, natality in the philosophical context she was using it, is just the simple fact that we were born. And also uh, getting a sense of this through the writer uh, Anne O'Byrne. I'm really grateful for her reflections on this. And some of the, the things that they point out about natality or the fact that you were born is, is one which I think is so important because it can land a certain flavor that's so helpful to bring into mindfulness. Because when I reflect on my birth, it reveals that I was born and grew up out of a web of human relationships. Right? Birth happens in relationship to others. It makes me remember that my beingness arises out of relationality. It arises out of my relations to others. I wouldn't be here unless it was because of others. And I can feel that sense of gratitude for my relations in all the ways that you can understand that term. And as Hunter Rent points out, the fact that we've been born is a testament to new beginnings. I've partaken in a new beginning because it's inherent in birth. And it's inherent in just the act of living. Can you keep in contact with that quality of being born in terms of your practice? There's that potential for new beginnings there. And have you noticed, maybe I have, the way I have on retreat, how you can lose that sense of the possibility of new beginnings. Also, reflecting on birth reveals we are historical beings, and this world is not of your own making. Kind of the language that Anna Byrne uses, getting from Heidegger, is, is it can feel like I've been thrown into this world. So it's not of my own making, and we have the responsibility of navigating it.
And just as a side note, I, w- I want to point out that I'm sharing with you some reflections uh, from uh, two women on this subject. And the reason I point that out is because there have been critiques around many spiritual traditions. There can be exceptions like what we're hearing around Buddhism and also in philosophical traditions where what's emphasized is death and birth is left out. Do you know why? (laughs) It's the obvious, isn't it? Cisgendered men don't have babies. <laughs> People with female bodies give birth to babies. So it's also to, to bring in a, a wider range of voices because wisdom grows when there's a wider range of voices. Okay, so in just a minute, I, uh, I'm going to be taking you through a guided meditation, and, and I'm going to be guiding you in a way that the language you're going to be hearing is to get a sense of as if you're speaking this to yourself and then getting a feeling sense of it. So in light of this, what I invite you to do, if you need to, if you need to stand up for a few seconds or move, just so there's a quality of comfort, really don't be shy about taking care of your body and moving, stretching a little bit if you want to. So that there's some ease, some relaxation, these, these essential qualities that we want and even wanting to get evoked from this reflection. feel ready, maybe coming into a posture that feels supportive. And then allowing your attention to come inward. And I invite you to begin by simply feeling the body. Allowing for a quality of relaxation, a quality of ease to be there. Allowing the body to settle, maybe to settle downward. And as I take you through this very brief guided meditation, what's important about it mostly is just as you're settling in, just seeing how it reverberates and in the heart and the body. It's like allowing it to work the way it wants to work and trusting that. So to begin, birth. 
I have been born a precious human birth, an opportunity to live a life. Rare indeed is human birth. And to be exposed to a spiritual path even more rare. And even more rare than that is to have the opportunity to fully devote my time to this path while on retreat. And being born, it reminds me I am here because of others. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for others. I have gotten to this point in life as a result of being in relation to others. I have been born a precious human birth, a beautiful new beginning. It instills in me this potential for new beginnings. I have been born, I have been thrown into a world that was not my own making and now situated within various histories that were not my own choosing. Thrown into the history of my family, my society. It is not my own making, but it is mine to navigate skillfully. And now death. Everything is lost in death. My death is certain, but the time of my death is uncertain. My death is certain. Every living being who came before me has died. I am not an exception to this. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate.
It is the inevitable consequence of being born. It is intertwined with my birth. The time of my death is uncertain. Every moment I move closer to death, like the sun during the day draws closer to sunset. Where I die is uncertain. It could be at home or in a hospital. It could be in a car or here. Maybe alone or maybe together. Where I die is uncertain. How I die is uncertain. It might be long and drawn out, or it might be suddenly. It might be a painful death or an easeful death. It might happen through an accident or cancer or a stroke or a heart attack. How I die is uncertain. Knowing that my death is certain and the time of my death is uncertain, how do I touch this moment right now? Knowing that my death is certain and the time of my death uncertain, how do I make the most of the remainder of this retreat? Thank you. Thank you for your attention.